This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, August 26th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Voodoo Housing Project moves forward. At Canyonlands, the town takes a new approach to development. A day in the life of a miner is back. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Koto has been on the air almost 50 years, and we're not going anywhere. Thanks to your support, we can continue to grow and serve this community. Go to koto.org during our summer funding drive, and thank you. A new Telluride housing project is one step closer to shovels in the ground. Essentially, we're we're there. We're we're very close to being finished and um, looking forward to receiving the the um, revised plans to to get this project a certificate of appropriateness. And at that point, they can um, the project could move on to building permit and getting the site ready for for um, construction. That's Jonna Wenzel, Historic Preservation Director for the town of Telluride. The project is the Voodoo Housing Development. The lot sits on the corner of Willow and Pacific, across from the post office. Last week, the Historic and Architectural Review Commission reviewed the final design for the housing project. HARC uh, approved the project with, I believe, seven conditions. Um, a few of those were quite simple, standard conditions. Um, and one specifically was to increase an upper level setback a little bit more than they had proposed. The development is a mix of affordable housing units, on-site parking, and deed-restricted commercial space. It will also be the new home to the free box. There will also be a rehabilitation of the historic shed. The architects had a, a big um, program <laughs> to try to incorporate into that site. Um, I, the town wanted to make the best use of the site, you know, um, given the space available. Um, and so the design approach was to try to integrate new a new design, a contemporary design, into the historic district. It is in the historic district, and it's also in the... Um, kind of historically warehouse district. And so they wanted to incorporate um, some feel of that, <clears throat> but also um, make it feel residential because people are going to live there. Wenzel notes the goal of the design is to blend the commercial and residential nature of the project. At the corner of Willow and Pacific is really the anchor of the project. And that feels um, like a two-story commercial space. It'll be a brick material on the facade with larger um, kind of commercial-sized windows. There'll be an entry at that corner into the commercial space. And then as you move north on Willow Street, really what you'll see is um, the historic shed, which is to be rehabilitated. Moving west along Pacific, the building shifts from that commercial to residential. There'll be more landscaping. There'll be um, access to the uh, residential units there. There'll be access to the parking garage from Pacific. And then um, at the Westernmost corner, which is just adjacent to the Blue Crib, that is a historic structure there that faces Spruce Street, um, the building will step down to um, 
uh, about a, a one-story element, which is, again, a little more commercial feeling, um, but was designed really to try to respect that historic um, structure um, to the West. Wenzel acknowledges there has been a lot of public engagement on the design of the project, with members of the community both for and against the development. We really appreciate the um, the public participation in the process. Um, we we realize that this project is will impact you know the town, the historic district, the neighborhood, um, the neighbors specifically, and. Um, it is, um, it's wonderful that people want to be engaged in that process and ultimately help make the project better. She adds it's Hark's responsibility to balance historic preservation with community needs. Hark's job is to also um, make sure that, you know, the, the design guidelines um, are, are uh, met as, as much as possible, that the historic district integrity is preserved as much as possible. Um, the historic district is not static. Obviously, we, you know, we allow uh, new construction in the historic district. And it is hard to think of um, a, a large building that we know will have a great impact in the historic district. Um, but also, it, it isn't a museum. It's not static. People um, need places to live. You know, people need places to go and work. And um, the town is has, is constantly changing. The town of Telluride still needs to go through a number of financial and administrative steps before construction can begin. Town officials say they hope to begin preparing the site for construction this fall. What does a canyon land have in common with the tower house? Those are the locations of yet more potential affordable housing in the town of Telluride. At this week's town council meeting, members voted to approve the writing up of an RFP for development on two town parcels, the canyon lands and the tower house lots. An RFP is a request for proposals. What makes this proposed development unique is council members are pursuing it as a public-private partnership. This means a private developer will be chosen to manage the project and will work alongside town in both the building and the maintenance phases. Lance McDonald, the program director for the town of Telluride, explains the status of the project following this week's meeting. Uh, the Canyonland site is immediately east of Clark's Market, and the Tower House site is um, approximately 50 feet east of that area at the corner of Tomboy Street and Colorado Avenue. Uh, both of those properties have been acquired by the town or the Block 23 Housing Corporation in the recent years. Uh, the town council, uh, based on a recommendation from the THA subcommittee, has directed staff to prepare an RFP, a request for proposals, for a public-private partnership on these properties. Although the town often works with contractors and builders, this would be the first public-private partnership of its kind in Telluride. Never before has the town actually solicited a developer to plan, oversee, and own a housing project so fully. The project is still in extremely early stages. The town has not even completed the RFP, or announced the specifics of the project to potential developers. 
McDonald says that only after the RFP is made public will town council be able to look at different development options. So it's our anticipation that once an RFP is issued, that there'll be a certain time period by which uh, proposers can submit their uh, ideas and applications to the town that would be then subsequently reviewed. Nevertheless, town council has already set some goals for the potential development. McDonald says the most important parameters are around the size and the cost of the units. So the committee has set out certain uh, goals on the housing side for this PPP. And for example, they've indicated that 30, they would like to see 35 to 45 housing units. They would like to see the housing units be deed restricted, and and these are the goals or the targets on the housing side. On on the uh, private side, uh, up to 15% of the project could be uh, free market, either residential or commercial. Town will offer incentives to potential developers to make the construction project more appealing and profitable. This includes paying for utility and sewage hookups, transferring the land to the developers free of charge, and taking care of any changes to street or sidewalk infrastructure. The developer will also be able to build and sell some market-rate real estate as part of the development. McDonald says that the town has looked to other models for public-private partnerships. One lesson they've learned? The process will probably involve lots of negotiation and have to respond to the state of the economy. We've looked at other communities' approaches to public-private partnerships, and one thing I've noticed is that um, often the original goals of the project um, modify and change somewhat once uh, the negotiations with a preferred team start because a sense of reality is added to the discussion, and um, these things are also uh, construction cost-related, interest rate, expense-related, those types of things, that it's a very dynamic situation. So I think it's good that the town is uh, setting out what is important to the town, but it'll be also important to hear back from the private sector as to how they would look at this and what uh, what's important to them. McDonald's closing message to listeners, he says there's a long way to go. This is just very <laughs> early, <laughs> like super early. Regardless of the wait, the news of more housing in town is exciting for many. Town Council and its housing subcommittee will continue discussions as plans develop. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. The school year is up and running, and that means a day in the life of a minor is back. To kick off this year, we've flipped the script. KOTO News spoke with Telluride High School's Finton Cole about the summer and heading into his senior year. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. Welcome back to a new school year. How does it feel to be back in the school this year? Well, it feels great. I mean, we've... I mean, I've been away at summer a long time, and when this school year is over, I just can't wait to get out of here. Yeah, so you're a senior this year. You're in your final year at the Telluride High School. How does that feel to be in your final year of school? Feels great, man. I've, I've, I'm pretty sure other seniors would think that way, too. What was the best part of summer for you? Well, the best part about summer was that I went to Crooked Creek Ranch, and that was really fun. The worst part of the summer was the traffic when I went to camp. A semi flipped over, and I think somebody 
died in that flip, so that that was a bummer. I think somebody died. I'm not 100% sure, but the accident was pretty bad. What are some of the classes that you're taking this year, and what are you really excited about for your senior year? I think I'm excited for my senior year to work on any homework that I have in my classes, probably get that over with. Can't wait for like spring to come around. What's exciting about spring? For spring, the, well, first off, the fall season is boy soccer, basketball in the winter, and volleyball, I think in the fall or winter, I'm not sure but girls soccer and boys lacrosse and girls lacrosse are all in the spring. So you are in your final year of high school, as we've said. Um, what, would you, what advice would you give to freshmen or kids who are in their first year at Telluride High School? Basically, just pick classes that are right for you. Just have a great time. Well, Fenton, thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes to chat and happy first week of school. Thank you. Curious about unlocking the powers of spiritual healing? Ure resident Elizabeth Lava will host a book talk and signing this coming Tuesday at the Wilkinson Library on her latest project, Stillness in Wilderness. Part memoir and part spiritual guide, Lava's book recounts the story of her spiritual emergency and her path towards greater purpose and wholeness. In addition to being a writer, Lava is a yoga instructor, spiritual coach, avid hiker, and a former global health expert. The program will feature a guided meditation, a Q&A, and a book signing alongside the talk. The event will take place on the Library Terrace at 5.30 on Tuesday, August 30th. The Grand Mesa Uncompagre and Gunnison National Forests is planning to clean up mining contamination at the Old Irene Mine. The area is about two acres in size and tucked away above Highway 550 near the Richmond Pass, about halfway between Silverton and Ure. Contamination at the site includes three piles of hazardous waste and an old mining adit or entryway, which is seeping toxins. The cleanup, which will take place in September, involves collecting all the on-site waste into a secure underground repository and covering it with native rock. The project will include revegetation on the site, drainage and watershed management, as well as upgrades to trailheads and parking areas. The project is still in the planning phase and open to public review. To make a comment or learn more, stop by the GMUG offices in Delta or get in touch at usda.gov. Fourteen tribes in the Colorado River Basin say they're being kept largely in the dark about plans to conserve an unprecedented amount of water amid historic drought. That's according to a letter they sent to the Department of the Interior. In June, the agency told states that use water from the Colorado River that they had to save two to four million acre feet, enough water to supply millions of homes. 
The deadline for states to come up with that plan is fast approaching, and tribes say they want a voice in closed-door discussions that will have an impact on them. Tribes hold the rights to about a quarter of the river's flow, but have generally been excluded from decision-making for decades. Conservatives in northern Colorado are trying to recall a state senator who left the Republican Party this week to become a Democrat. As KOTO Scott Franz reports, recalls have faced long odds in recent years. Republicans have targeted five Democrats with recalls since 2019, including Governor Jared Polis, but they all failed to get enough signatures. Conservative activist Michael Fields is leading the latest effort. He says the campaign against Senator Kevin Priola of Adams County will be different. We have both the grassroots support that is needed to get volunteer signatures uh, and also the, the paid side. And you have to raise money in order to do that. We feel like we'll be fully funded in this effort. Fields says Priola's district is growing more Republican. He will represent parts of Weld County next year because of redistricting. Priola says he left the Republican Party because of its failure to tackle climate change and its embrace of election conspiracy theories. I'm Scott Franz. Colorado Senator John Hickenlooper was in southwest Colorado last week. He made stops in Norwood, Rico, Dolores, and Durango. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Lucas Brady Woods of KSJD spoke with Senator Hickenlooper to discuss his visit and how federal policies will impact the local region. But first, he asked the senator about the Freedom to Travel for Health Care Act and what it means for reproductive health care across the state. I wanted to ask you about the Freedom to Travel for Health Care Act um, and how it will support and protect Colorado and specifically access to local reproductive health care. What that does is it is explicit in making sure that if someone's traveling from a state where any form of abortion has been banned, then they come here for a... Uh, to get a, you know, a consultation and maybe a medical procedure, whatever their decision, there are laws in other states that say that that doctor can be held accountable can, for breaking the law, can be prosecuted, uh, can be fined. So we're just trying to say, no, no, that's, that, this is not a national law that it goes across state lines. This is uh, totally the Supreme Court comes to their, to their senses. This is going to be something where if, this kind of consultation or procedure is legal in Colorado, then Colorado doctors will be protected and cannot be held uh, as violating the law just because some other state thinks that this should be illegal. You know, one thing that I've been seeing also about this is is some, some patients having trouble finding room in some local uh, abortion clinics to get services because there are so many people from other states coming to that clinic to use the services. Does, it, does the, the act do anything to ease that burden? Well, it's hard to ease that burden uh, just because it's, it's a fact of life that we, we just don't have the capacity. And in these days of workforce shortages, it's hard to see how we get back up to that capacity. Uh, one of the things that the doctors I talked to were very concerned about was when you have residents, you know, they start their... When they get out of medical school, they are an intern, and then they go and they do a residency somewhere. And roughly half the states are suddenly going to say that residency in their state no longer includes that part of gynecological medicine that has everything to do with uh, getting pregnant, 
looking through the pregnancy and, and monitoring the health of the fetus, the health of the mother. And if, if states make that whole process illegal, we're not going to have enough doctors. Assuming that the, you know, a lot of these patients are going to be going from the states where it's illegal to states where it is legal, there are not going to be enough doctors in those states where it's legal to provide, to provide the, the, the medical support. It's, it's, it's going to get to be a really critical issue. Turning to Southwest Colorado, you stopped in Rico to talk about infrastructure. You mentioned broadband as something that needs to be addressed. How does recent federal legislation plan to address that? What we've done this time, I mean, there's $65 billion uh, that we put in the infrastructure bill specifically to make sure that we get every home in America with high-speed Internet. And what we did was we left the vast majority of that of those funds are going to be left to the states, the municipalities, and the counties, because we believe, and I believe, that that local government is going to do a better job of figuring out the best way, the most efficient way, to do the, the maximum benefit with the limited dollars that we have. I'd like to touch on uh, the proposed Dolores River National Conservation District. Um, and sure. so, so why, why now? Why is that happening? Why is there push for that now? And how will it benefit locals here in southwest Colorado? Well, you know, people have been working on protecting the Dolores River uh, and the Dolores River Canyon for a couple decades. Uh, and I think this, this uh, national conservation area um, and special management area are going to allow both Republicans and Democrats to unite around this level of protection. So within, you know, Dolores County, but also uh, San Miguel County and, and Montezuma County, uh, we've got Republicans and Democrats all saying this is what we want. And, you know, it's not every day that we get both Republicans and Democrats speaking loudly over the need to protect 68,000 acres of public lands in Colorado. And so I, I think it's a great... A, a great compromise and a great collaboration. Last thing I wanted to just touch on, if you have any thoughts about um, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I know it, it, it specifically mentions efforts to create manufacturing jobs and invest in disadvantaged communities. I know some of those manufacturing jobs are tied into clean energy. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how that specifically may apply to communities here in um, our part of the state? Yeah, I think it applies everywhere. And you look at things like manufacturing solar panels. These are uh, the types of manufacturing facilities. You don't have to have them gigantic. There's so much variability and, and in different climates and different situations, you need different types of panels or different uh, uh, embellishments to the panels. So you can have, relatively speaking, small manufacturing plants all around the state you know that's exciting. That's you know that's going to bring jobs and manufacturing home to home to Colorado, home to America. So one one question on that. So I just was actually at a an open house event by a solar company, Invenergy. Uh, so Invenergy is what the company's called, and they were had an open house here in Pleasant View, and there was a lot of local resistance. How do you you know with with moving manufacturing and sort of clean energy projects, even if it's just the manufacturing of them? into these communities, how, how do you th- propose or how do you think is the best way to, to get past that resistance? 
certainly there is resistance to change for a variety of reasons, as you say. And in, in communities that really feel that, let's say, for instance, they feel that these solar panels are, are going to take away jobs from people working in coal mines. I don't think that's true, but I have heard people say that to me. And we're not going to force anybody, any community, to manufacture solar panels if they don't want to. But it is a very good way that you can create high-paying jobs in, in communities that are losing coal mining jobs or, you know, large utility, you know, coal-fired electrical plant jobs, which are high-paying. The solar, the solar fabrication plants will be paying the same kind of high wages that people were used to in these traditional you know, fossil fuel-related jobs. So, again, we're not going to force anybody to do anything, but it's a shame not to put these jobs where, where we're losing jobs already. And, you know, again, people are going to realize, I mean, not just people that have driven electric vehicles, you realize that this is going to be a less expensive car when they start building it at scale. It's, once they get the range sorted out, it's going to be a, a much more effective and, and efficient car, and it's going to be a lot less expensive to operate. People are going to come around to this, this great transition, which is how we make energy, how we utilize energy, how, how we look at our, our, our architectural environments and spaces and how we look at our transportation systems. As we go through this change, again, no one's going to be forced to come along, but I think the alternatives, the choices that will be offered are going to be very attractive. And I think most communities are going to see them embracing solar panels and electric vehicles. And, you know, maybe not everywhere, but in most places, I think they will. Senator, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to speak to us here at KSJD, and I, I really know our listeners do too. Yeah, my, my pleasure. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 50% chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with partly cloudy skies and a low around 50 degrees. Saturday, expect increasing clouds with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. The high is near 70 degrees with a low around 50. Sunday should be mostly sunny with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. The high is near 70 degrees. Sunday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low around 50 degrees. This has been the news for Friday, August 26th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our summer fund drive. A huge thank you to Jackson Schneider, Rick Gomez, Roxanne Vistacci and Aiden Gibbons, Eli Simpson, Elizabeth Cutler, Max Yancey, Kate Wadley, Mark Charles, Sarah and Morgan Lavender-Smith, Charles Dignan, Howard Moffat, Andrew and Sarah Milder, Sarah and David Holbrook, James and Virginia Lucarelli, Brewster Shaw, Dave Peterson, Eric Reinhardt, Mike Bordonia, Neil Johnson, Jane Shivers, Judith Temple, Kathleen Ream, Sarah McGeehy, Taylor Smith, Brady Casper, Leslie and Bud Crane, JD and Megan Wise, Tim Tarito, Carl Hauser, Jennifer Wells, and Michael Goldberg. Thank you all so much. And now, a personal commentary. 
The Progressive Women's Caucus is proud to present Women, Wisdom, and World Domination, Wednesday, August 31st, 5.30 p.m. at the Liberty. Join us for an evening of conversation and community building, featuring guest speaker Jimena Smith, who will help us better understand reproductive rights, where we are, and where we go from here. Formerly Women, Wine, and World Domination, we have changed the name of this foundational event to be more inclusive of all ages and lifestyles, hence the switch from wine to wisdom. Regardless of the name, this event is really about relationship building and conversation. We as the PWC Governing Council want to create a safe space for our community to engage in difficult conversations, no matter your age or gender. Our amazing guest speaker, Jimena Smith, is a corporate attorney at an international law firm. She specializes in mutual fund law and has an active pro bono practice representing asylum seekers before immigration courts in California and Texas. Her passion for reproductive rights started as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. She was born and raised in Lima, Peru, and resides with her family in Telluride, Colorado. So mark your calendars for Women, Wisdom, and World Domination, Wednesday, August 31st at 5.30 p.m. at the Liberty. Thanks, Koto. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.